turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. Archaeologist Mike Parker Pearson is leading one of the biggest archaeological investigations of modern times, a seven-year project to unlock the mystery surrounding Stonehenge. There was a puzzle there, and we thought, yeah, why don't we actually go and find out for ourselves? Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Paradigm with me, Paul. Thank you for listening. Thank you for all those that keep coming back and listening. It's much appreciated to see the numbers of listeners going up, so thank you very much. So today we're going to be looking at Stonehenge. Stonehenge is one of the most wondrous and recognisable ancient megalithic sites from around the world. The world-famous site is shrouded in mystery and is visited by about a million people every year. And Stonehenge has perplexed many ancient historians and archaeologists for hundreds of years. And there are many theories as to how it was built, what purpose it was built for and who actually built it. And it is estimated that Stonehenge was built approximately 2800 BC, although it is um, posited that it took a number of years to build it and possibly wasn't finished completely until around 2000 BC. However, in this episode, I want to look at the explanations of how these giant stones got to Wiltshire in southern England. Who actually built Stonehenge and for what purpose it was built? I want you to start thinking outside of just the physical realm as to actually what you can see. This is a deep rabbit hole and it's going to require you to open your mind. I'm only seeking to, in a coherent manner, hopefully show you that the history of our world is far stranger than what we have all been taught. In the UK, our history that was taught at school was that the island of Britain was inhabited by savages and then around 55 BC, the Romans came to Britain and fought a few battles against the different Celtic tribes. They then returned with a much larger army in 54 BC then around AD 43, Emperor Claudius ordered four legions to conquer Britain. Then approximately AD 410, Roman Britain came to an end due to the continued incursions by the Saxons, the Scots, the Picts and the Jutes. Then from there, the island uh, ended up being broken up into three nations, England, Scotland and Wales. Now obviously this is just a simplification of the history of the island of Britain. But the point is, the history that is taught completely ignores the fact that Stonehenge, for example, clearly couldn't have been built by 
savages or people with limited technology or little knowledge. So how did stones from Stonehenge, how did they get there, these massive stones? Well, firstly, what needs to be understood is that there are two types of stones at Stonehenge. On the inner circle, there are the blue stones, and these weigh approximately four tons each. On the outer circle, the sarsons, these weigh approximately 25 tons each. That's on average. Now, the blue stones are not from England. They're actually from Preseli Hills in southwest Wales, which is approximately 170 miles on foot. And that is if you go over the Severn Bridge, which was not there 5,000 years ago. The Severn Bridge is two and a quarter miles long. So if that route was taken, they would have had to take these stones over the river via some um, boats or something like that, some rafts or something. But if they went on the overland route, um, where they would avoid the River Severn, the route would be close on 200 miles to get to Stonehenge. Another hypothesised possible route is that they went around the southern coast of Wales and then over into England. But we need to bear something in mind when considering the transportation of the Bluestones or even the Sarsons. There were no lorries, there was no cranes, no heavy lifting equipment of any kind at that time. Now the Sarsen stones are said to come from Marlborough Downs, which is approximately 20 miles from Stonehenge, although some more recent research suggests that they come from a place called West Woods, which is just on the edge of the Marlborough Downs, and that is approximately 15 miles from Stonehenge. The Sarsens are much larger and heavier than the blue stones they average approximately 25 tons each however the largest sarsen stone is about 20 foot high and weighs approximately 45 tons interestingly some of the stones at stonehenge if you go into the inner part the inner circle they have like smooth grooves in them like like almost as if they've been scooped out, not not chiselled away, they are smooth grooves. And it has been thought that this could have only been done because the stones were heated to such a high temperature that they became almost like a marshmallow. And then they could have scooped out the part that they didn't want out of there. And it's much like some of other megalithic sites around the world, um, for example, some of them look like they've been squashed together. Like when you look at how the walls are constructed and you look at the joints, there's no mortar between the joints, but you can't even get a hair between the joints. There's a picture on my Instagram as an, an example of this uh, from Cusco in Peru, and it's worth just having a quick look at that uh, uh, on my Instagram account, Paradigm1979. So... How did the sets of stones get there? Well, there's various theories that have been proposed, but it's definitely not known for definite how they got there. Now, these are the 
mainstream explanations for how both types of the stones were transported to Stonehenge. So rolling on logs or sledges, and this is one common theory, and it suggests that the stones, particularly the large sarsen stones, were placed on wooden sledges or rollers and that they were dragged over specially prepared paths or tracks. The use of logs or sledges would have reduced friction and made it possible to move heavy stones across the landscape. This method would require a significant amount of manpower and coordination. Greased slides. Another theory proposes that the builders could have used a mixture of water and plant material such as wet leaves or moss to create a slippery surface in front of the stones. This would have allowed the stones to slide more easily over the ground. The process would need to be repeated as the stones were moved forward. Water transport. Some researchers believe that the stones may have been transported by water along rivers or even the sea. For example, the blue stones from Wales could have been floated on rafts or boats along waterways and then dragged over land for the final portion of the journey. A combination of land and water transportation. A possible combination of land and water transport. These stones could have been moved over land to a river or coastline, loaded onto boats or rafts, and then transported by water before being moved over land again to Stonehenge. Glacial transport. Uh, the blue stones, the smaller blue stones, may have been naturally transported closer to Stonehenge uh, by glaciers during the last ice age. The builders could have collected these stones from locations relatively nearby. Winter transport. Some of the theories propose that the stones were transported during the winter months when the ground was wetter, more slippery, making it easier to move the heavy loads over frozen ground, could have provided a smoother surface for transport. Human-powered transport. Manpower would have been crucial in this factor of transporting the stones, large groups of people could have worked together to move the stones using ropes, sledges and other simple tools. And ramping, this is sort of the, another theory by the mainstream, all these are mainstream theories. Another possibility is that the builders constructed earthen ramps or inclines to elevate the stones slightly, allowing them to be rolled or dragged into place. These ramps would have required careful engineering to manage these, the, the steepness and to support the weight of the stones. It's important to note that these theories are not mutually exclusive and a combination of the methods may have been used depending on the factors such as the stone size, distance, terrain and the available technology. Now, when considering these theories, we need to keep in mind the weight and the size of these stones and the distance involved, the terrain also. The mainstream consider that these people were, well, sort of savages. They, were, they weren't actually an advanced civilization. these people. And they're only considering physical and never anything spiritual or, or even the possibility that these ancient people were actually more advanced than we are. In the year 2000, a group called Mentor Procelli 
named after the Preseli Hills there, attempted to take a three-ton blue stone from the Preseli Hills to Stonehenge, using what the mainstream believed was the technology of the time. The group attempted to drag the stone on a wooden log sledge and rope over land, so they were using rope and this wooden log sledge that they constructed, what they believe was used, and then they was going to drag it to the coast and transport it via a Stone Age boat. They took approximately one full day to move the stone one mile. They eventually got it to the coast, tried to place it on this Stone Age boat or raft, whatever you want to call it, and the stone sank when placed on the boat. So that proves this theory is incorrect. The mainstream would have you believe, you know, that they were dragging these things from anything to 170 to 200 miles. Well, these guys attempted it, this group, and failed. Well, the mainstream theories about how the stones were transported to Stonehenge involve methods like rolling on logs, water transport and sledges. There have been some more unconventional ideas proposed by researchers and enthusiasts. So let's look at some of these now. Levitation or anti-gravity. Some alternate theories proposed that an advanced civilization had advanced technologies and they could levitate or use anti-gravity to use to move these massive stones. And there's actually a new study that suggested that they may have used sound to levitate these massive stones into place. The research published in the Journal of Archaeological Science used computer simulations to show that Stonehenge rocks could have been moved using the method known as acoustic levitation. Acoustic levitation is a phenomenon in which sound waves can be used to create a force that lifts and moves objects. It has been used in scientific research for decades, but this is the first time it's been suggested as a possible method for moving Stonehenge's massive stones. The study's author says that the method would have been within the capability of ancient Britons, and that it could explain the way they were able to move the stones from a faraway quarry and transport them to the monument's location. Abdul Hassan Ali al-Musudi, an Arab historian from the 10th century AD, wrote about ancient Egypt and the methods he alleges they used to move massive stones, including those used to build the pyramids. He claimed that a magic papyrus imprinted with symbols was placed under each stone, after which a metal rod was struck against the stone to initiate the levitation process. According to El Masudi, the stone would have been guided along a fenced path with metal poles placed on each side. Some believe these poles could have been used to create a high frequency sound vibrations which would have been responsible for creating the levitation effect. Sound or resonance technology has also been proposed. 
and there are ideas surrounding this that sound resonance technology was employed to move or manipulate the stones. These theories speculate that certain frequencies or vibrations could have been used to reduce the stone's weight or make them easier to move. Sound resonance refers to the phenomenon where an object or system vibrates at its natural frequency in response to an external sound stimulus of the same frequency. When an object's natural frequency matches the frequency of the applied sound waves, it absorbs the energy from the sound waves and starts vibrating strongly. This can lead to amplification of the sound and the object can even start vibrating to the point of creating an audible sound. And the main differences between acoustic levitation and sound resonance are Acoustic levitation involves using sound waves to suspend objects in mid-air, defying gravity. Sound re resonance involves the vibration of an object at its natural frequency when exposed to external sound waves of the same frequency. Acoustic levitation is a phenomenon where sound waves create stable regions of high and low pressure to hold its object in suspension. Sound resonance is a phenomenon where an object vibrates strongly when exposed to sound waves of its natural frequency amplifying the sound. Another method proposed is telekinesis or psychic powers. Some individuals have suggested that psychic powers or telekinesis were used by the ancient builders to move the stones. It's also been proposed of extraterrestrial involvement. It's a less common theory and it suggests that extraterrestrial beings may have assisted in the construction of Stonehenge using advanced technology beyond human capabilities. Time travel or ancient aliens is another one. Similar to the extraterrestrial theory, this speculative idea proposes that time travellers or ancient astronauts from the future or other worlds played a role in building Stonehenge. Mystical or ritualistic methods. Some theories suggest that the stones were moved through mystical or ritualistic means potentially involving ceremonial chants, rituals or spiritual practices. According to Geoffrey of Monmouth, the Saxons, through trickery, slaughtered the British at the meeting of the nobles in Salisbury Plain. King Ambrosius, brother of Uther Pendragon, wanted a memorial to those slain by the devious Saxons. And Merlin, the wizard, suggested transporting the stones from the giant's dance at the top of Mount Kilaris in Ireland back to Britain. It was called the Giant's Dance in Irish folklore because it was said that giants had built it. Ambrosius thought that this would be a fitting memorial uh, to the army of Britons um, that were slaughtered by these Saxons. So he sent an army to Ireland to get these stones. Many tried and many failed but only Merlin was able to transport them back to Britain and make Stonehenge. Merlin applied his esoteric knowledge to uproot the stones, transport them on ships and then re-erect the monument 
on Salisbury Plain, at the very spot where the Saxon chieftains had so treacherously slain the British leaders. The story then goes on to say that Stonehenge served as a grave for Ambrosius, as well as Constantine, Arthur's successor. The quote by Monmouth states, Aurorius ordered Merlin to erect round the burial place stones which he had brought from Ireland. Merlin obeyed the king's orders and put up the stones in the circle round the sepulchre in the exact same way as they had been arranged at Mount Kilarus in Ireland, thus proving that his artistry was worth more than any brute strength. Now, not only had these stones to be taken to Salisbury, but the massive lintels, the horizontal pieces, would have also had to have been lifted up and placed on top of the vertical sarsons. The exact purpose and meaning behind the construction of Stonehenge, a pre the prehistoric monument in Wiltshire in England, it remains the subject of debate and speculation amongst archaeologists, historians and researchers, and there's no definitive answer, but several theories have been proposed. So, one of these is religious or spiritual significance, and it's a widely accepted theory is that Stonehenge was built for religious and spiritual ceremonies. The arrangement of the stones, particularly during the solstices and equinoxes, suggests an alignment with astronomical events. Some believe it was a place where the ancient people observed and celebrated celestial events, such as the changing of the seasons and possibly performed rituals related to fertility, life and death. Some theories suggest that Stonehenge served as a portal or a gateway to the spiritual world or other realms. The monument's unique layout and arrangement of stones could have been um, believed to facilitate communication with ancestors, deities or supernatural beings. And the idea that Stonehenge may have served as a gateway to the spirit world it's a speculative theory based on the monument's unique design, alignment and its potential role in ancient religious and spiritual practices. Now, some of the aspects of this particular theory are alignment and sacred space. So, Stonehenge's careful alignment with astronomical events such as the solstices and equinoxes led people to believe that it was a place where ancient people believed they could connect with the spirit world during these special times. The alignment of the stones could have been seen as a means to bridge the gap between the physical and the spiritual realms. Transcendent experiences, another theory, Stonehenge's construction and arrangement might have been thought to facilitate transcendent experiences, allowing individuals to commune with ancestors, deities and 
other supernatural beings or entities. The ritual and ceremonial activities that took place at Stonehenge could have been believed to open the channel for communication between the living and the spirit world. Also symbolism and transformation. The circular shape of the Stonehenge, its concentric rings of stones and the processional avenue leading up to it could have held symbolic significance related to the journey between the earthly realm and the spiritual realm. The act of entering the monument and participating in the rituals there might have been seen as a transformative experience allowing individuals to access higher states of consciousness or spiritual insight. There's also theory regarding offerings and communication. Uh, the deposition of valuable artefacts, grave goods and cremated remains at Stonehenge suggest that it was a place where offerings were made and a communication with sp the spirit world was sought. These offerings may have been intended to appease or honour ancestral spirits or other supernatural beings. It's also been proposed as being uh, a part of this day, possibly a pilgrimage or a spiritual renewal. Stonehenge's remote location and the effort required to visit it could have contributed to the belief that making a pilgrimage to the site would have resulted in spiritual renewal or a closer connection to the spirit world. And the true purpose though and significance of Stonehenge may never be fully understood, but the concept of having it serve as a conduit between the physical and spiritual realms remains a fascinating and evocative idea that speaks to the enduring allure of this ancient monument. It's also been proposed as being a ceremonial burial site and it may have been a burial site for important individuals or a place of ancestor worship. Human remains have been found in the vicinity of Stonehenge indicating that the site was used for burial purposes at various points in its history. These remains provide valuable insight into the people who used and frequented the monument. Now here are some of the most notable discoveries of human remains at or near Stonehenge. Aubrey Halls. The Aubrey Halls is a series of circular pits within the Stonehenge earthwork and it contained cremated human remains. The holes date back to the earliest phases of Stonehenge. So approximately, maybe 2800 BC. These are approximate dates. They don't know exactly. The Stonehenge Archer in 1978, the grave of an archer was discovered near Stonehenge. This individual was buried with a rich assortment of grave goods, including arrowheads, a wrist guard and a stone mace head. They dated the remains to 2300 BC. There's also the Stonehenge Armsbury Archer. This individual, whose grave was discovered in 2002, is known for the high status grave gods buried with him, including a cushion stone, which uh, a type of polished mace head. His remains and grave gods suggest connections with a distant regions highlighting the importance of Stonehenge as a centre of trade and cultural exchange. And the archery, this Armsbury archer, again, they've dated to around 2300 BC.
There's the Stonehenge Boscombe Bowman. These graves, found in the vicinity of Stonehenge, belong to individuals buried with their archery equipment. The grave goods indicate a ceremonial or ritual significance. Again, they've dated the remains to 2300 BC. Uh, there's also child burials been found there. The cremated remains of two children were found in a grave near Stonehenge. They gave an approximate age of the children between the ages of three and seven years old at the time of their deaths, and they dated these graves to approximately 1550 BC. There's also the Stonehenge Bluestone Grave, which they discovered in 2018, a grave containing the cremated remains of an individual, and he was found at the site known as Blick Mead, located approximately 1.5 miles from Stonehenge. The grave is thought to be associated with the initial construction of Stonehenge, and they've dated it to around 5,000 years ago. It's also been suggested that Stonehenge may be a healing or ritual centre. Some researchers suggest that Stonehenge was a place of healing or pilgrimage where people came seeking cures for ailments or participated in rituals related to health and well-being. Also maybe a social or political gathering area. Stonehenge might have served as a meeting place for different tribes or groups, fostering social interactions trade and exchange of ideas it could have had political or cultural significance as a gathering point it's also been theorized that it's symbolic representation of the landscape stonehenge might have been constructed as a symbolic representation of the surrounding landscape with an arrangement of stones mirroring natural features like hills and rivers also maybe an astronomical observatory Stonehenge's alignment with astronomical events has led some people to propose that it served as an early astronomical observatory, helping ancient societies track celestial bodies and predict natural phenomena. Also, status and prestige. The effort and resources required to build Stonehenge could have been a display of power, status or prestige by the people who constructed it. But it's important to note that Stonehenge likely had multifunctional roles which evolved over time with different people groups using it for various purposes. And as our understanding of archaeology and prehistoric societies advance, new insights into the purpose of Stonehenge may emerge. So who actually built Stonehenge? Well, the mainstream say that non-advanced humans, or they, they sort of speak about them as if they were savages. They didn't have modern technology, obviously, but, but they weren't even particularly advanced. And there's several theories that have been proposed regarding these people or cultures who built Stonehenge, and 
the mainstream say that we don't have any definitive evidence to pinpoint the exact builders of these theories. But let's have a look at some of them, what they theorise, the people that built them. Neolithic or Bronze Age communities. The most widely accepted theory is that Stonehenge was built by these Neolithic or Bronze Age communities um, that inhabited the British Isles at the time. It's also what are called the Beaker people, the Beaker culture, which emerged in the late Neolithic and early Bronze Ages, sometimes associated with Stonehenge. This culture is known for its distinctive pottery and artefacts. Some researchers suggest that the Beaker people were among those builders who built Stonehenge and used Stonehenge. Celtic Druids has also been theorised, but this theory is less supported by the archaeological evidence. Some historical accounts and modern myths have associated Stonehenge with Celtic Druids. However, it's important to note that the Druids emerged centuries after Stonehenge was built, and there's limited historical evidence linking them to the monument. Druids frequently worshipped and practised their rites in the oak groves. The word Druid actually is derived from the Celtic word meaning knower of the oak tree. I would just write off the Druids as being the builders of Stonehenge. I think the evidence is completely against that theory. Immigrant cultures has also been proposed that people who built Stonehenge may have included immigrants or groups with cultural connections to distant regions. The presence of the blue stones from Wales suggests that these stones were transported over a long distance, potentially indicated cultural and trade links. And there are shifting theories, so over time theories about the builders of Stonehenge has evolved as new archaeological discoveries are made and our understanding of prehistoric societies deepens. Some earlier theories, such as those attributing the monument's construction to ancient Egyptians or the Atlanteans in the mainstream have been widely discredited by modern scholars. It's important to acknowledge that the true identity of the builders may never be known. Now, that's according to the mainstream. However, I don't think any of the above, what I've spoken about, built Stonehenge. The first thing to note about Stonehenge is that the original name of Stonehenge is actually the Giant's Dance. The oldest known depiction of Stonehenge being built from the 12th century is by an artist called Le Roman de Brut. And it shows the construction of Stonehenge by a giant with the assistance of Merlin. In the early 1500s, Sir Thomas Eliot, an author, diplomat and scholar, reported on a 14-foot, 10-inch skeleton found a few miles south of Stonehenge. Also, in a huge oak coffin was an ancient book with mysterious inscriptions on it. In 1719, a 9-foot-4 skeleton was found in a mound nearby. And like I said, the earliest recorded name of Stonehenge is the Giant's Dance. 
and in legend the stone circle was said to have been built by a tribe of giants called the Kangik Giants. A book called The Giants of Stonehenge in Ancient Britain, in which the authors take a deep dive into obscure newspaper accounts, antiquarian diaries, archaeological reports, local history records and newly translated ancient text, academic papers, new scientific reports and written evidence related to the giants of Great Britain from hundreds of sources going back over approximately a 4,000 year period. There's over 250 accounts of remains of giant human skeletons ranging from 7 feet to 21 feet or if you measure in metres 2.13 metres to 6.4 metres and these have been found in the archaeological and historical records and they were often measured and commented on by famous scientists and scholars and writers at the time. A wealth of folklore law from England, Wales and Scotland and also Ireland talk about sophisticated cultures of giants with supernatural powers and advanced technology who had control over thunder and lightning as witnessed when their tombs were disturbed by later generations. And that's something um, that the Native Americans um, are terrified about, these mounds in the United States. They do, they do not want to go near them and they tell people not to because they've said that there's been witnesses of thunder and lightning when these tombs have been disturbed. They're in great fear of them. Often, um, these giants were high kings and queens who were said to be master geomancers, surveyors, architects, astronomers who ruled from their mountaintop fortresses. They're also said to be master masons also, being able to work stone in an advanced fashion beyond the capabilities of masons today. Now, regarding fort law, I believe it's sheer arrogance by the modern man to just discount folklore as, as simply just complete fables that someone has just invented from absolutely nowhere. And I have said previously in my episode on ancient giants that stories of giants are found on every continent on earth. Every continent. You cannot simply just discount this. And the reason why the giant stories are ubiquitous is because they are memories from past times. The memories of real beings and the real events that took place. Now I'm not saying that every single story in Fort Law regarding giants is 100% accurate. But what I am saying is, is that giants are a real part of the history of the earth. And I'm not speaking about metaphorical giants, I mean real giants of great physical stature who were more advanced than we are. And the reason why giants have been erased from the mainstream history is because it does not fit with the theory of evolution. Now over the last 100 years, thousands of giant skeletons have been found throughout the world and especially in the American Midwest. So you're going to ask now, well, where's the evidence of this? One way or another, the Smithsonian Institute quickly caught wind of most of these giant findings 
and made the evidence disappear. In most cases, those who exhumed the giant skeletons reported their findings immediately to the Smithsonian Institute. They naively trusted the Smithsonian to do what was in the public interest. Now, apparently, the Smithsonian's concept of public interest includes protecting Darwin's theory of evolution and the established historical narrative at all costs. In other words, lying to the public. But I wouldn't even call the theory of evolution a theory. It's simply a hypothesis. And Darwin himself accepted that should they not be able to find any transitional fossils, his hypothesis would collapse. While they've never found a single transitional fossil, and the reason for that is because what Darwin said is complete fabrication. It's false. The mainstream can't accept that there was an advanced race of giants or, or any kind of advanced civilization before we existed. Because the theory of evolution is that we're evolving not devolving, so we're becoming more advanced. That's what they're trying to tell us. So if a race of giants existed, then it proves we're actually devolving and not evolving. And that biblical accounts that talk of giants, well, they might just be true if we actually find out that there was really giants. So if the Bible accounts of giants are true, what else is the Bible saying that's true? Well, obviously, if you've been listening to my episodes, you know that I believe all of the Bible's true. We really do live in an empire of lies. It's really like the Truman Show. Our history is fake. Darwin evolution is fake. Stonehenge was not built by Stone Age humans with limited technology. But I believe that giants built Stonehenge and they possibly used either acoustic levitation or sound resonance was used in order to move these massive stones great distances. Now, if you discount the supernatural, the spirit world, giants, etc. from your paradigm, your, your worldview, then you're going to obviously seek to explain all things in terms of what is seen, what you can touch, what they've told you in school, and by the mainstream media, mainstream science. The father of lies, Satan, he's pulled a veil over this world. Now I, I accept that some of these topics are truly mind-blowing. But the history of our world really is far, far different than what you have been taught. And what I would say is to people, don't fear being on the fringes. Don't fear people, they're only jars of clay. I've been a Christian for over 20 years and I'm in the minority. I'm always in the minority, in the workplace, wherever, in my community. But I'm not bothered what people say because I know that the majority of people are believing a lie, what we call as normies. If you're a truth seeker, even if you're not a Christian, but you're a truth seeker and you believe in alternative history... You don't accept the mainstream narrative that's being put on you. You don't believe that climate change is what they're saying it is. You didn't have the COVID vaccine. Don't let people 
put you off from believing these things because of ridicule. People may ridicule you, but they're only people. Like I said, they're only jars of clay. If you're enjoying this podcast, guys, just give me a five-star review and follow me on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. Something so simple as that really does help me. It, It helps me to appear higher up when someone's doing a search and then I can attract more people to listen to this. So I'd really appreciate you doing that for me. If you want to follow me on Instagram, it's Paradigm1979 or on Twitter, Paradigm underscore 1979. So until next time, thanks for listening, guys. I'm Paul and this is Beyond the Paradigm. Am I crazy? We don't use that word in here.